from God's Word. It's awesome to be back and to see some familiar faces and, yeah, just really excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'll be, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 11 uh, today. So if you've got Bibles or phones or whatever, feel free to open them up and um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, which I will be reading out for us right now. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams, so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Would you please pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, in a set of different circumstances to what we usually would, uh, but we pray that by your word you would speak to us, uh, you would be convicting us, and that it would be a way for us to engage and worship with you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us and bless us by what we are about to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. At 701 BC, you're an inhabitant of Jerusalem. The Assyrian army is coming down from the north. They have assaulted Ayath, taken Migron, conquered Michmash and Geba and Ramah. Gibeah and Galim have been taken. Lysha and Anathoth and Madmana lie in ruins. Gebim and Nob are deserted. They've taken these towns with impunity, destroyed them with ease, and they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to you, 
to your family, closer and closer to the temple of your God. You know that fighting against them is hopeless. You feel completely helpless. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for hope? It's 2015 AD. You're a Christian in the Middle East. ISIS is ravaging the surrounding area. You've seen Christian friends be killed. You know that if anyone finds out that you're a Christian, you'll be next. Your family and your children will be next. You have discussions with your wife about what to do if the secret police break in and start torturing and raping you. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for hope? It's 2021 AD. You're a Christian in Adelaide, South Australia. You watch the news and see the headlines. 10,000 people dying daily from COVID. 50 million plus babies killed in their mother's wombs each year. Over 100 million people in Africa facing catastrophic levels of food shortage. 3 billion, unpeople, 3 billion unreached people in the world who are born, live and die without ever hearing the message of the gospel. Our culture becoming ever more hostile to the beliefs and practices of traditional Christianity. Where do we turn for comfort? Where do we turn for hope? I think most of us just, turn, just prefer to turn our minds away from these things. We struggle to answer these questions, but that struggle disappears when we put these questions out of our head. But we don't have to turn away and ignore these situations. There are answers, and Isaiah gives them to us in chapter 11, in what we've just read. He's writing specifically to address the first set of circumstances, Assyria marching down towards Jerusalem from the north. But I believe that his recommendations are just as relevant to us today in 21st century Adelaide. So I hope that by the end of this message, by the end of this morning, you know where you can turn to next time you're overwhelmed by helplessness and by hopelessness. You can turn to our faithful God, to our good king, to his good kingdom, and to his plan for getting us there. And so we start with the first verse of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now this verse provides the foundation for the whole chapter. So it's important that we spend a little bit of time here at the start figuring out exactly what Isaiah means. So he says that the stump of Jesse will produce a shoot, will produce a branch. So first, what's with this whole stump of Jesse business? Who was Jesse? Well, we hear about him in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He was a man from the town of Bethlehem. He had eight sons and at least a few sheep. He was pretty much a nobody living in the middle of nowhere. But the thing was, God had chosen one of his sons to become the second king of Israel. That son was King David, the most famous, godly, and beloved king in the whole history of Israel. So Jesse is famous because he's David's dad. Fame by association kind of thing, lucky guy. So now we come to David, and this is where things get a little bit more relevant. Under David, Israel had its golden age. David was a godly ruler, a mighty king. And he unified Israel. His kingdom grew bigger and bigger every year, stronger and stronger every year. 
He could do nothing wrong. Almost nothing. Anyway, under David, things were good. They were great. But unfortunately, David suffered from the same fate of all of us mere humans. He was mortal. He was going to get older. He was going to die. And then what would happen to his kingdom? Well, spoiler alert, it would all eventually crumble to pieces. But God makes a promise to King David. He says, this kingdom that you have built, it won't be in vain. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God say to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now as time goes on, we see David's actual son, Solomon, fulfill some of these things. He does, in fact, come from David's body. He does build a temple for the Lord. But again, he's mortal. How can his throne be established forever? And we see Solomon go a little bit off track. And from there, it's mostly a downward trajectory. One bad king after another. We see this if we read through the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles. They did evil in the sight of the Lord again and again and again. And the kings in Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, they were bad kings. But in the midst of this, God's promise to David is still there. And the people, they know it. And they start looking at this promise, not only referring to his son Solomon, but to a coming king from the line of David, who would restore David's kingdom and be a great and mighty king, just like David was. This coming king, this anointed one, this Messiah, this was the hope that they were holding on to. Even 250 years after this promise, in the time of Isaiah, the people were holding out for a hero. So when Isaiah starts by reminding them of this coming David figure. Of course this is comforting. They know that this downward trajectory of kings will eventually end and the Messiah will come. But Isaiah tempers his message a little bit. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's from a stump that this Messiah will spring forth. In chapter 6, verses 13 of Isaiah, he talks about how the remnant of God's people, once strong and mighty like an oak tree, has now been chopped down. Only the stump remains. And that stump has been burnt again and again with fire. This is the future that Isaiah sees for the people of Israel, for the line of David. And it plays out. In the next 700 years, the northern kingdom, Israel, is wiped out by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, is taken off into exile in Babylon. The Greeks conquer all of this land, impose their rule on those who are left in Israel. And then the Romans come in and take over from the Greeks. And the people of God suffer under the rule of others. The line of David is so woeful that Isaiah doesn't even call it that. 
He references Jesse, his father, instead, a nobody. Because this line of David doesn't deserve to be associated with the king that's in such a state. But God is faithful. He doesn't forget his promises. And so, just like David was born to Jesse, a nobody in Bethlehem, the middle of nowhere, another son is born to Mary and Joseph, people of no renown, in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem. But there's one more piece of information that we need. Joseph is a descendant of David. This son, Jesus, is the fulfillment of this promise that God made to his ancestor, David, over a thousand years before. This is the hope that Isaiah was holding out to the people of Jerusalem 750 years before. God is faithful. What he has promised, he will bring about. So when we, like the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's time, are surrounded by enemies, by worry, by fear and hopelessness, we can look to and trust in the promises of our faithful God. He is in control. Even though none of those people in Isaiah's time lived to see their promise come true, those who hoped in the fulfillment of this promise, they set their hopes on solid ground. But we all too often don't trust in the promises of God, but we trust in the power structures of today. And this is our downfall. We think that, oh, if only the other political party won the election, all our problems would be solved. If only Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk donated 10% of their wealth to help people starving in the world, it would all be fixed. If only our soldiers defeated ISIS so definitively, our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters would be able to live happily. If only, if only, if only. We place our hope and our trust in flawed people. And then when they don't solve all the problems in our lives, in fact, the problems only get worse, we retreat to this place of helplessness, a place of hopelessness. But what if there was somewhere else we could place our hope? Someone who would not fail us. A good ruler. A good king. And this is Isaiah's next point. This Messiah who is coming, he is the good king. He is the good ruler. He is the one that we can trust to do rightly by us. Like the former kings of Israel, like Saul and David, under whose rule things went well, this king would be filled with the spirit of the Lord. This spirit would give him wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will be a king with these characteristics. And in verses 3 to 5, Isaiah goes on to explain how these characteristics work themselves out in his rule. He cannot be deceived or swayed by what he sees, what he hears. He knows the heart of the matter through the wisdom and the counsel that the Spirit brings. He judges things rightly. He has no bias towards the rich and the powerful, but instead he treats the poor and the lowly with righteousness and equity. He cares about them. He does what is right for them. 
this king is immensely powerful. He's not reckless or unjust with his power. He destroys what is harmful to his people. They can find protection and refuge in him. Two of his most fundamental qualities are righteousness and faithfulness. Oh, if only more of our leaders acted like this. If only they were more like him. Unfortunately, they're not. And they never will be. So can I encourage you to be realistic about how much hope you put in leaders, in power structures, in policies? Next time that you realize this is where you've placed your hope, might you pray instead that God would help you put your hope in this mighty and just king? Next time you're disappointed by human leaders, everything feels hopeless, seems helpless. Turn to this leader. Pray that he would show you how much better it is to live under his reign and rule. How much hope and peace you can find in that. So now we've seen that we can turn to our God who is faithful to keep his promises. Also we can turn to our just and faithful king that God has sent. But we can also turn to the kingdom that this king came to establish. Now the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, of this king who came to fulfill God's promise to David, are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. What Jesus is saying is, now that the king, that's me, has arrived, the kingdom too is at hand. But what will this kingdom that this king has come to establish be like? Well, Isaiah sees a little glimpse of it. So if you'd read with me from verses 6 to 9, I'd just like for you to imagine this scene in your heads. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah sees wolves, those hated beasts that come in and devour the shepherd's flocks. He sees them not now attacking and killing, but living together with these sheep. The fearsome lion will lie down with the helpless calf. Predators and prey living together without enmity, without fear, with peace. And they'll all be so tame that even a young child can tell them what to do and where to go. And they do it. This young child is safe around them. We also see that the fundamental nature of these animals has been changed. The bear now eats grass like a cow does. The lion eats straw like an ox. No more do they get sustenance from killing each other. But there will be peace and life instead of fear and death. But even more amazingly, 
In verse 8, we see that this enmity between serpents and humans has been removed. This was part of the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. After the snake convinces Adam and Eve to sin, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But in this kingdom that the king is bringing in, even that curse has been lifted. Isn't this an amazing picture? Doesn't this make you want to live in a world like that? Everlasting peace and joy, no pain or harm or fear. And God says that is what we as Christians have to look forward to. It's what Isaiah holds out as an answer for our times of helplessness and hopelessness. Don't forget, this is what God has promised. This is what our faithful God has promised, he says. There is hope, there is peace, and it's coming. Now, if you remember the stories that I mentioned in my intro, first I talked about hopelessness in Isaiah's time with the evasion, invasion of the Assyrian Empire. Then I talked about a persecuted Christian in the Middle East, and finally about us today. The middle story wasn't just a random example. It actually comes from a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves. I watched it a couple weeks ago. It's on YouTube. And I would definitely recommend it to you with the warning that it's full-on and very confronting. In this doco, they interview a Christian man from the Middle East who's in a seemingly hopeless position. His Christian friends have been executed there's a very real possibility that the secret police will break into his house and torture and kill him. His wife, his children are in huge danger. And we ask, and they ask, how can he live like that? This is his answer. The only way I can experience that moment and not crack and not bow, like Daniel didn't bow and his friends didn't bow to the statue, is to think about the age to come. If I think about that at that moment, then what is one day of death? What's 10 days of torture? What's 10 years in jail? What's 40 years in solitary confinement? What is all that compared to eternity? This man has seen the hope in the picture that Isaiah is holding out. He's seen the comfort in the promise of a faithful God to send a good king who will build a kingdom where there is peace, where everything is put right. Oh, my brothers and sisters, to have that faith, to have that hope, and we can. When we follow Isaiah's advice and turn our eyes to the kingdom that will be established when our king returns. But right now we live in an in-between space. This Messiah has come. And he's brought the beginnings of this amazing kingdom. And so we, as followers of this Messiah, we should be living in little bubbles of this kingdom. Our families and our churches should be places of peace and hope where we, people who are so different and opposite and incompatible in the eyes of the world, can come together and we can live differently, having been changed in our fundamental selves, because of this Messiah, because of, his en- because of our entry into his kingdom. But this kingdom 
will only be fully realized with the return of the king. The kingdom is now, but not yet. But don't worry. God has a plan for this kingdom to expand. And we see that in the last section of Isaiah chapter 11. So in this last few verses, from verses 10 to 16, we see Isaiah repeat points and ideas again and again and again. And this is really quite a common motif in biblical Hebrew poetry. And here we see that these points that he repeats again and again and again are divided into two main things, a gathering in and a sending out. First, God promises to gather his people, to unite them under one banner. This gives us the idea of a military banner, a gives us the mental image of a huge army gathered together, unified, ready for war. And that banner, that's the root of Jesse. That's the same Messiah that we saw promised in verse 1. The same king that we saw described in verses 2 to 5. The one who will bring about the kingdom in verses 6 to 9. This future gathering in event of God's people is likened to the Exodus. Verse 11, Isaiah says that the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover his people. This reminds Isaiah's listeners of the first time God did that, when he brought his people up out of slavery in Egypt. Again, verses 15 and 16 mention the Exodus specifically. The destruction, the parting of the Red Sea to form a highway for God's people to cross a previously uncrossable barrier so that they could come into his promised land. Kind of sounds a bit like what Jesus came to do for us, hey? Isaiah also talks about how the remnant of God's people will be gathered from all nations. In verse 10, he talks about the nations, that is, the non-Jews, that come to inquire of this root of Jesse. In verse 11, he talks about God's people coming back from this huge long list of different countries, being gathered together under this banner of the Messiah. Now, if you look at the map that will come up on the screen in a second, you'll see that what Isaiah is getting at is what he says again in verse 12. People are coming from the four points of the compass, the four quarters of the earth, to gather to this king. And they can only do that because God has removed the barriers that were stopping them. Interestingly, Paul interprets this prophecy about, as talking about the time that he, Paul, lived in just after Christ's death, when it was made clear to everyone that the Gentiles too were welcomed into the people of God. He quotes Isaiah 11 verse 10, and uses this as motivation for his mission to spread the gospel among the non-Jewish people. Because Jesus, by his death, has removed the barriers between them and God. They too could come and join this mighty army gathered under the Messiah. And Paul's response, that is, going out and inviting people into this family, into this hope, by doing his best to help this gospel, this kingdom expand, 
This is the response that Isaiah sees too. He uses warlike language, conquering and destroying, but his main point is that this united force of people under the banner of Jesus spreads out into the world, advances the kingdom of this Messiah. And this is where we are today. We're in the same same boat as Paul. We're living after Jesus, after his death and resurrection, but before his return. The kingdom is expanding and conquering. People are becoming Christians. God is using his united force of people to spread this message of hope into the world. Until the Messiah returns and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So in the face of hopelessness and helplessness, we don't have to turn away and cower. We don't have to forget about it, hope that it goes away. God wants to use us. He can use us and he will use us to conquer this, to overcome, to help the expansion of his kingdom, knowing that it's not in vain. So where can we step up? Where can we push out against the forces of darkness who want us to feel hopeless? How will you and I work for the expansion of God's kingdom? Do we, like Paul, head out into the nations, proclaiming the message of hope in the gospel? Do we give up our rights, our right to freedom of gathering as God's people, our right to an easy life, our rights to life itself, like our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East? Do we march for the right to life of the unborn and the disabled and the elderly? Do we sponsor a child or a family or a village somewhere in the world so they have enough food to eat? How are you going to be part of this conquering army of God? So I hope that this morning we all see that when we are faced with situations and world events with a culture, a society that overwhelm us, that makes us feel hopeless, that makes us feel helpless, that makes us feel like there's no way we can deal with this and we should just turn away, do our best to live in our little bubbles, not thinking about these things. I hope we can see that there's another option, a better option. We can turn to our God who is faithful to bring about his promises. We can turn to our King, Jesus, who rules and will rule with justice and faithfulness. We can turn our eyes to the promised and coming kingdom of our King, where everything will be made right. These worries will be no more. And we can take comfort in the fact that God has a plan and wants to use us in the spread of his kingdom. So this morning, I'd just like to finish with the words of Helen, Helen Howard Howarth, gosh, Helen Howarth Lemel. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There is a light for a look at the Saviour, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed, and we follow him there. Or our sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. 
His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation. Thank you, Lockie. Thank you for that word and that beautiful reminder that you know our, our journey here in Australia, our journey is anyone could call it easy. We don't have that persecution that you spoke of. We don't have the challenges that other people in the parts of the world do. My challenge this morning was to decide what pair of shoes to wear because I have more than one and maybe a few more. But maybe that is our challenge here on this beautiful place that we get to call home. That challenge to be bold, like you were just then, to go forth where you really listen to God taking you. Because that is our simple challenge. We have everything else. You know? Thank you. And Deb's words reflect, reminding us that God is just there. He's not far. But it's for us to turn and face that. Wonderful reminder. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we close, folks. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and be reminded.